0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories, and today's story, The Locket, by Kate Chopin. The Locket is Chopin's poignant Civil War story. Part 1 The Locket had returned to her sanctified in her eyes, made precious as material things sometimes are by being forever identified with a significant moment of one's existence. One night in autumn, a few men were gathered about a fire on the slope of a hill. They belonged to a small detachment of Confederate forces and were awaiting orders to march. Their gray uniforms were worn beyond the point of shabbiness. One of the men was heating something in a tin cup over the embers. Two were lying at full length a little distance away, while a fourth was trying to decipher a letter and had drawn close to the light. He had unfastened his collar and a good bit of his flannel shirt-front. "'What's that you got around your neck, Ned?' asked one of the men, lying in the obscurity. Ned, or Edmund, mechanically fastened another button of his shirt and did not reply. He went on reading his letter. "'Is that your sweetheart's picture?' "'Tain't no gal's picture,' offered the man of the fire. He had removed his tin cup and was engaged in stirring its grimy contents with a small stick. "'That's a charm. Some kind of hoodoo business that one of them priests gave him to keep out of trouble. I know them Catholics.' That's how come Frenchy got promoted and never got a scratch since he's been in the ranks. Hey, French, ain't I right? Edmund looked up absently from his letter. What is it? he asked. Ain't that a charm you got round your neck? It must be, Nick, returned Edmund with a smile. I don't know how I could have gone through this year and a half without it. The letter had made Edmund heartsick and homesick, "'He stretched himself on his back "'and looked straight up at the blinking stars. "'But he was not thinking of them, "'nor of anything but a certain spring day "'when the bees were humming in the clematis, "'when a girl was saying goodbye to him. "'He could see her as she unclasped from her neck "'the locket which she fastened about his own. "'It was an old-fashioned golden locket "'bearing miniatures of her father and mother "'with their names and the date of their marriage. "'It was her most precious earthly possession.' Edmund could feel again the folds of the girl's soft white gown and see the droop of the angel's sleeves as she circled her fair arms about his neck. Her sweet face, appealing, pathetic, tormented by the pain of parting, appeared before him as vividly as life. He turned over, burying his face in his arm, and there he lay, still and motionless. The profound and treacherous night, with its silence and semblance of peace, "'settled upon the camp. "'He dreamed that the fair Octavia "'bought him a letter. "'He had no cheer to offer her "'and was pained and embarrassed "'at the condition of his garments. "'He was ashamed of the poor food "'which comprised the dinner "'at which he begged her to join him. "'He dreamt of a serpent "'coiling around his throat, "'and when he strove to grasp it, "'the slimy thing glided away from his clutch. "'Then his dream was clamor. "'Get your duds, you, Frenchy!' "'Nick was bellowing in his face.' There was what appeared to be a scramble and a rush rather than any regulated movement. The hillside was alive with clatter and motion, with sudden upspringing lights among the pines. In the east the dawn was unfolding out of the darkness. Its glimmer was yet dim in the plain below. What's it all about? wondered a big black bird perched in the top of the tallest tree. He was an old solitary and a wise one, yet he was not wise enough to guess what it was all about. "'so all day long he kept blinking and wondering. "'The noise reached far out over the plain and across the hills "'and awoke the little babes that were sleeping in their cradles. "'The smoke curled up toward the sun and shadowed the plain "'so that the stupid birds thought it was going to rain. "'But the wise bird knew better. "'They are children playing a game,' thought he. "'I shall know more about it if I watch long enough.' At the approach of night they had all vanished away with their din and smoke. Then the old bird plumed his feathers. At last he had understood. With a flap of his great black wings he shot downward, circling toward the plain. A man was picking his way across the plain. He was dressed in the garb of a clergyman. His mission was to administer the consolations of religion to any of the prostrate figures in whom there might yet linger a spark of life. A negro accompanied him, bearing a bucket of water and a flask of wine. There were no wounded here. They had been borne away. But the retreat had been hurried, and the vultures and the good Samaritans would have to look to the dead. There was a soldier, a mere boy, lying with his face to the sky. His hands were clutching the sward on either side, and his fingernails were stuffed with earth and bits of grass that he had gathered in his despairing grasp upon life. His musket was gone, he was hatless, and his face and clothing were begrimed. Around his neck hung a gold chain and locket. The priest, bending over him, unclasped the chain and removed it from the dead soldier's neck. He had grown used to the terrors of war and could face them unflinchingly, but its pathos some way always brought the tears to his old, dim eyes. The Angelus was ringing half a mile away. The priest and the negro knelt and murmured together the evening benediction and a prayer for the dead. Part 2 The peace and beauty of a spring day had descended upon the earth like a benediction. Along the leafy road which skirted a narrow, tortuous stream in central Louisiana rumbled an old-fashioned cabriolet, much the worse for hard and rough usage over country roads and lanes. The fat, black horses went in a slow, measured trot, notwithstanding constant urging on the part of the fat, black coachman. Within the vehicle were seated the fair Octavi and her old friend and neighbor, Judge Pillier, who had come to take her for a morning drive. Octavia wore a plain black dress, severe in its simplicity. A narrow belt held it at the waist, and the sleeves were gathered into close-fitting wristbands. She had discarded her hoop-skirt and appeared not unlike a nun. Beneath the folds of her bodice nestled the old locket. She never displayed it now. It had returned to her sanctified in her eyes, made precious as material things sometimes are by being forever identified with a significant moment of one's existence. A hundred times she had read over the letter with which the locket had come back to her. No later than that morning she had again pored over it. As she sat beside the window, smoothing the letter out upon her knee, heavy and spiced odors, stole into her with the songs of birds and the humming of insects in the air. She was so young, and the world was so beautiful, that there came over her a sense of unreality as she read again and again the priest's letter. He told of that autumn day drawing to its close, with the gold and the red fading out of the west, and the night gathering its shadows to cover the faces of the dead. She could not believe— "'that one of those dead was her own. "'With visage uplifted to the gray sky "'in an agony of supplication, "'a spasm of resistance and rebellion "'seized and swept over her. "'Why was the spring here with its flowers "'and its seductive breath if he was dead? "'Why was she here? "'What further had she to do with life and the living?' "'Octavia had experienced many such moments of despair, "'but a blessed resignation had never failed to follow.' and it fell then upon her like a mantle and enveloped her i shall grow old and quiet and sad like poor aunt tavy she murmured to herself as she folded the letter and replaced it in the secretary already she gave herself a little demure air like her aunt tavy she walked with a slow glide in unconscious imitation of mademoiselle tavy whom some youthful affliction had robbed of earthly compensation while leaving her in possession of youth's illusions. As she sat in the old cabriolet beside the father of her dead lover, again there came to Octavia the terrible sense of loss which had assailed her so often before. The soul of her youth clamored for its rights, for a share in the world's glory and exaltation. She leaned back and drew her veil a little closer about her face. It was an old black veil of her Aunt Tavy's A whiff of dust from the road had blown in, and she wiped her cheeks and her eyes with her soft, white handkerchief, a homemade handkerchief fabricated from one of her old, fine, muslin petticoats. "'Will you do me the favor, Octavi?" requested the judge, in the courteous tone which he never abandoned. "'To remove that veil which you wear. It seems out of harmony some way with the beauty and promise of the day.' The young girl obediently yielded to her old companion's wish, and, unpinning the cumbersome, somber drapery from her bonnet, folded it neatly and laid it upon the seat in front of her. "'Ah, that is better, far better,' he said, in a tone expressing unbounded relief. "'Never put it on again, dear.' Octavia felt a little hurt, as if he wanted to debar her from share and parcel in the burden of affliction which had been placed upon all of them. Again, She drew forth the old muslin handkerchief. They had left the big road and turned into a level plain which had formerly been an old meadow. There were clumps of thorn trees here and there, gorgeous in their spring radiance. Some cattle were grazing off in the distance in spots where the grass was tall and luscious. At the far end of the meadow was the towering lilac hedge, skirting the lane that led to Judge Pillier's house, and the scent of its heavy blossoms met them like a soft and tender embrace of welcome. As they neared the house, the old gentleman placed an arm around the girl's shoulders, and turning her face up to him, he said, "'Do you not think that on a day like this miracles might happen? "'When the whole earth is vibrant with life, does it not seem to you, Octave, "'that heaven might for once relent and give us back our dead?' He spoke very low, advisedly, and impressively. In his voice was an old quaver which was not habitual— "'and there was agitation in every line of his visage. "'She gazed at him with eyes that were full of supplication "'and a certain terror of joy. "'They had been driving through the lane "'with the towering hedge on one side "'and the open meadow on the other. "'The horses had somewhat quickened their lazy pace. "'As they turned into the avenue leading to the house, "'a whole choir of feathered songsters "'fluted a sudden torrent of melodious greeting "'from their leafy hiding-places.' Octavia felt as if she had passed into a stage of existence which was like a dream, more poignant and real than life. There was the old gray house with its sloping eaves. Amid the blur of green and dimly, she saw familiar faces and heard voices as if they came from far across the fields, and Edmund was holding her, her living Edmund, and she felt the beating of his heart against her and the agonizing rapture of his kisses striving to awake her. It was as if the spirit of life and the awakening spring had given back the soul to her youth and bade her rejoice. It was many hours later that Octavia drew the locket from her bosom and looked at Edmund with a questioning appeal in her glance. It was the night before an engagement, he said, in the hurry of the encounter and the retreat next day. I never missed it till the fight was over. I thought, of course, I had lost it in the heat of the struggle, but it was stolen. She shuddered and she thought of the dead soldier with his face uplifted to the sky in an agony of supplication. Edmund said nothing, but he thought of his messmate, the one who had lain far back in the shadow, the one who had said nothing. We'll return to our second story, A Lady of Bayou St. John, right after this sponsor message. And now, A Lady of Bayou St. John, by Kate Chopin. The days and nights were very lonely for Madame de Lisle. Gustave, her husband, was away yonder in Virginia somewhere, with Beauregard, and she was here in the old house on Bayou St. John, alone with her slaves. Madame was very beautiful, so beautiful that she found much diversion in sitting for hours before the mirror, contemplating her own loveliness, admiring the brilliancy of her golden hair, the sweet languor of her blue eyes, the graceful contours of her figure. "'and the peach-like bloom of her flesh. "'She was very young. "'So young that she romped with the dogs, "'teased the parrot, "'and could not fall asleep at night "'unless old black Manalulu sat beside her bed "'and told her stories. "'In short, she was a child, "'not able to realize the significance of the tragedy "'whose unfolding kept the civilized world in suspense. "'It was only the immediate effect "'of the awful drama that moved her, the gloom that, "'Spreading on all sides, penetrated her own existence "'and deprived it of joyousness. Sepincourt found her looking very lonely and disconsolate one day "'when he stopped to talk with her. "'She was pale, and her blue eyes were dim with unwept tears. "'He was a Frenchman who lived nearby. "'He shrugged his shoulders over this strife between brothers, "'this quarrel which was none of his, "'and he resented it chiefly upon the ground that it made life uncomfortable.' yet he was young enough to have had quicker and hotter blood in his veins. When he left Madame Delisle that day, her eyes were no longer dim, and a something of the dreariness that weighted her had been lifted away. That mysterious, that treacherous bond called sympathy had revealed them to each other. He came to her very often that summer, clad always in cool, white duck with a flower in his buttonhole. His pleasant brown eyes sought hers with warm, friendly glances that comforted her as a caress might comfort a disconsolate child. She took to watching for his slim figure, a little bent, walking lazily up the avenue between the double line of magnolias. They would sit sometimes during the whole afternoons in the vine-sheltered corner of the gallery, sipping the black coffee that Manalulu brought to them at intervals, and talking incessantly during the first days when they were unconsciously unfolding themselves to each other. Then a time came, came very quickly, when they seemed to have nothing more to say to one another. He brought her news of the war, and they talked about it listlessly, between long intervals of silence, of which neither took account. An occasional letter came by, roundabout about wazy from Gustav, guarded and saddening in its tone. They would read it, and sigh over it together. Once they stood before his portrait that hung in the drawing-room, and that looked out at them with kind, indulgent eyes. Madame wiped the picture with her gossamer handkerchief and impulsively pressed a tender kiss upon the painted canvas. For months past, the living image of her husband had been receding further and further into a mist which she could penetrate with no faculty or power that she possessed. One day at sunset, when she and Sepincor stood silently side by side looking across the marls, aflame with the western light, he said to her, "'Ma'am?' "'Let us go away from this country "'that is so triste. "'Let us go to Paris, you and me.' "'She thought that he was jesting, "'and she laughed nervously. "'Yes, Paris would surely be gayer "'than Bayou St. John,' she answered. "'But he was not jesting. "'She saw it at once in the glance "'that penetrated her own, "'in the quiver of his sensitive lip "'and the quick beating of the swollen vein "'in his brown throat. "'Paris or anywhere, with you.' "'Ah, bon Dieu!' he whispered, seizing her hands. But she withdrew from him, frightened, and hurried away into the house, leaving him alone. That night, for the first time, Madame did not want to hear Mama Lulu's stories, and she blew out the wax candle that till now had burned brightly in her sleeping-room, under its tall, crystal globe. She had suddenly become a woman capable of love or sacrifice. She would not hear Mama Lulu's stories.' She wanted to be alone, to tremble, and to weep. In the morning her eyes were dry, but she would not see Sepincourt when he came. Then he wrote her a letter. I have offended you, and I would rather die, it ran. Do not banish me from your presence that is life to me. Let me lie at your feet, if only for a moment, in which to hear you say that you forgive me. Men have written such letters before, but Madame did not know it. To her it was a voice from the unknown, like music, awakening in her a delicious tumult that seized and held possession of her whole being. When they met, he had but to look into her face to know that he need not lie at her feet craving forgiveness. She was waiting for him beneath the spreading branches of a live oak that guarded the gate of her home like a sentinel. For a brief moment he held her hands, which trembled. Then he folded her in his arms and kissed her many times. Oh, I love you! "'Will you not go with me, ma'amie?' "'Anywhere,' she told him, "'in a fainting voice that he could scarcely hear. "'But she did not go with him. "'Chance willed it otherwise. "'That night a courier brought her a message from Beauregard, "'telling her that Gustave, her husband, was dead. "'When the new year was still young, "'Sepancory decided that, all things considered, "'he might, without any appearance of indecent haste, "'speak again of his love to Madame de Lisle. That love was quite as acute as ever, perhaps a little sharper, from the long period of silence and waiting to which he had subjected it. He found her, as he had expected, clad in deepest mourning. She greeted him precisely as she had welcomed the cure, when the kind old priest had brought to her the consolations of religion, clasping his two hands warmly, and calling him "cherami Her whole attitude and bearing brought the seponcour the poignant, the bewildering conviction that he held no place in her thoughts. They sat in the drawing room before the portrait of Gustave, which was draped with his scarf. Above the picture hung his sword, and beneath it was an embankment of flowers. Seppencourt felt an almost irresistible impulse to bend his knee before this altar, upon which he saw foreshadowed the immolation of his hopes. There was a soft air blowing gently over the moray. It came to them through the open window. "'laden with a hundred subtle sounds "'and scents of the springtime. "'It seemed to remind madame "'of something far, far away, "'for she gazed dreamily out "'into the blue firmament. "'It fretted Sepincourt "'with impulses to speech and action "'which he found it impossible to control. "'You must know what has brought me,' "'he began, impulsively, "'drawing his chair nearer to hers. "'Through all these months "'I've never ceased to love you "'and to long for you. "'Night and day the sound of your dear voice "'has been with me. "'Your eyes!' "'She held out her hand deprecatingly. "'He took it and held it. "'She let it lie unresponsive in his. "'You cannot have forgotten "'that you loved me not long ago,' "'he went on, eagerly, "'that you were ready to follow me anywhere, "'anywhere. "'Do you remember? "'I have come now to ask you to fulfill that promise, "'to ask you to be my wife, "'my companion.' the dear treasure of my life. She heard his warm and pleading tones as though listening to a strange language, imperfectly understood. She withdrew her hand from his and leaned her brow thoughtfully upon it. Can you not feel, can you not understand, mon ami? She said calmly, that now such a thing, such a thought, is impossible to me? Impossible? Yes, impossible. CAN YOU NOT SEE THAT NOW MY HEART, MY SOUL, MY THOUGHT, MY VERY LIFE, MUST BELONG TO ANOTHER? IT COULD NOT BE DIFFERENT. WOULD YOU HAVE ME BELIEVE THAT YOU CAN WED YOUR YOUNG EXISTENCE TO THE DEAD? HE EXCLAIMED, WITH SOMETHING LIKE HORROR. HER GLANCE WAS SUNK DEEP IN THE EMBANKMENT OF FLOWERS BEFORE HER. MY HUSBAND HAS NEVER BEEN SO LIVING TO ME AS HE IS NOW, SHE REPLIED with a faint smile of commiseration for seppencore's fatuity. Every object that surrounds me speaks to me of him. I look yonder across the Marais, and I see him coming toward me, tired and toll-stained from the hunt. I see him again sitting in this chair, or in that one. I hear his familiar voice, his footsteps upon the galleries. We walk once more together beneath the magnolias, and at night, in dreams, I feel that he is there, near me, how could it be different? Ah, I have memories. Memories to crowd and fill my life if I live a hundred years. Seppencor was wondering why she did not take the sword down from her altar and thrust it through his body here and there. The effect would have been infinitely more agreeable than her words, penetrating his soul like fire. He arose confused and raged with pain. Then, madame? He stammered. There is nothing left for me but to take my leave. I bid you adieu. Do not be offended, mon ami, she said kindly, holding out her hand. You are going to Paris, I suppose. What does it matter, he exclaimed desperately, where I go? Oh, I only wanted to wish you bon voyage, she assured him amiably. Many days after that, Sepincor spent in the fruitless mental effort of trying to comprehend that psychological enigma, a woman's heart. Madame still lives on Bayou St. John. She a rather old lady now, a very pretty old lady, against whose long years of widowhood there's never been a breath of reproach. The memory of Gustave still fills and satisfies her days. She has never failed, once a year, to have a solemn high mess said that for the repose of his soul. Thanks for joining us for this special two-story podcast at 1001 Greatest Love Stories, The Locket and The Lady of Bayou St. John. Please join us next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for a brand new episode. We appreciate reviews, and we appreciate your sharing our show with others. Until next week, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.